We're in Deuteronomy chapter 19 through half of 22. Um, we're going to be looking at the sixth commandment today. It's not really a Palm Sunday text. It's much more of a Good Friday uh, text, but that's where we've landed. So that's what we're going to do. And so I encourage you, I've given some selected verses uh, in the uh, bulletin and in the um, sermon outline. If you downloaded either of those uh, from the website, uh, you can uh, follow along. I encourage you to do that. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. While we wait with the people of Israel in the land between. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us to the Ten Commandments as the gracious revelation of you and of us, who teach us that the law not only gives us life, but commands us to protect and preserve it. But it's hard to do. We're by nature angry. We're by nature hateful. We're by nature self-centered. And this commandment is focusing us on others. So as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us consider what it means to protect and preserve the lives of others. And so we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to know God more and to see Jesus clearly. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Let me ask a quick question. How many of you have read the book the lottery. Okay, a few of you, not everybody. The, uh, this book was published back in 1948. Shirley Jackson is the author, and her book, The Lottery, when it came out, created a storm of outraged moral protest. The story is set in a small town somewhere in rural America. And in it, the townsfolk gather for some sort of Ritual, which is obviously critical for the well-being of the uh, crops. And at the center of everyone's thoughts is the lottery. Now, the story gradually builds up to this stunning climax when it becomes clear just what the lottery is for, deciding on a human sacrifice. Now, Tessie Hutchinson, wife, mother, neighbor, chooses the slip of paper containing the dreaded black dot. And instantly, she finds herself isolated in the center of a cleared space. And even her little son, Davy, has pebbles in his hand, ready to stone her to death. It isn't fair, she screams. But nothing can stop the ritual. And the story ends with a sickening thud and the words, and then they were upon her. Now, from the late 1940s, through at least the 1990s, and even up to today, although not as widespread anymore, this story has been the subject of classroom discussions in American uh, high schools. And so um, most people, maybe through the 80s, had to read this book in high school. And that's less and less so today. Now the story is so well told, and the moral is so powerful, it inevitably engages the student's sense of right and wrong. But sociologists are now telling us that has changed. That's one reason why the book is not read in every high school anymore. And one 
A teacher wrote an article, she said one night, it's an English teacher, her name was Kay Haugard, and she's living, uh, leading an adult literacy class discussion, and they read this book, The Lottery, in which she re registered no moral response at all among her adult students. Nothing. One woman said, the end was neat. Another said, it was all right, it wasn't that great. They just do it, one argued. It's their ritual, as if to say, what is there to get so upset about? One woman in the class, in the class a stylish woman in her 40s, who normally wrote passionately, uh, passionately about saving the whales and rainforests, couldn't sum up, summon up even a small amount of concern for the sacrificed victims. And this teacher, Kay Hauger, wrote an article about this, reported her disturbing findings in the education journal, The Chronicle of Higher Education. And she concluded her article by saying, no one in the whole class of more than 20 ostensibly and take a stand against human sacrifice. Now, one could well respond uh, by saying it's just a story. And perhaps with the increasing number of violent images on TV and in the movies, uh, it's not surprising. The story today appears somewhat tame and to some inoffensive in comparison, and it elicits little emotional response. Welcome to our brave new world. Such stories could be multiplied. This one's mentioned not just to, uh, for the shock value, but in order to alert us to the kind of world we've been busy creating for ourselves. A world in which God has been declared of no significance, where absolutes of right and wrong have been swept away to be replaced by spurious feeling and what works for me morality, and in which human life has become inevitably cheap. Ours has become a throwaway society and even now, Christians are being overwhelmed by just how much and who is being thrown away. I mean, if you go back, say, 50 years ago, more or less, everyone in the West could have cited the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, probably with ease and conviction. Now our society only subscribes to the Eleventh Commandment, you shall not judge. However, we're not to think that there is no intellectual force behind these developments. The case for euthanasia, assisted suicide, abortion, infanticide, suicide, are all being put forth by some academics today as serious propositions based on naturalistic assumptions. And what that tells us is to some degree we've lost the big picture of the purposes of God's law. If you remember back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, when we went over the Ten Commandments, back then I told you the law has three basic purposes. First, the law is a bridle as it restrains sin. These purposes apply to the Sixth Commandment probably most clearly. It's a bridle as it restrains sin. By giving us the moral law, God helps us to restrain sin. 
The law of God points us to a higher standard and reigns in sin, and this is the first use of the law. Second, the law is a mirror that shows us our sin and drives us to Christ. When we read God's law, we see God describing a measure of obedience and holiness that we don't attain. That's why we have a confession of sin every Sunday. And the law acts like a mirror that reveals the flaws in our own character. The law shows us our sin and makes us aware of our need for grace. We wouldn't receive Christ as Savior if we didn't realize that we need a Savior. Apostle Paul says, Galatians 3, 24, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. And the law of God helps us see the truth about ourselves, so we'll be willing to receive the salvation presented to us in Christ. This is the second use of the law. Third, the law is a flashlight. Reveals the heart of God and the duty of man. It shows us the narrow path in which we should walk. And this is called the third use of the law. John Calvin called it the principal use of the law. And the third reason we should love the law is it teaches us about the heart of God. The law reveals what God considers to be right behavior. The law shows us God's desire for our life and our character, tells us the right way to live. And we need to listen to the law of God, not so that we would get to heaven, so that we would know how to live appropriately. So those are the purposes of the law. And knowing that is important because it's the first step in answering the objections of those who want to do away with not only the commandments, but with the presuppositions that underlie the commandments, namely that they reflect the character of God. And if you live in a society that doesn't believe in God or has watered down its understanding of God to such a point to make him irrelevant, then not only won't it reflect the character of God, but the naturalistic assumptions that allow for euthanasia, assisted suicide, abortion, a fantasy, are all that it has left. And that brings us to what I call the last commandment. Not that it's last in order or last in importance, but it's the last commandment that most societies still obey, at least legally, even if not as we've seen morally. And that's the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now, since we have three and a half chapters to cover today, they include an immense number of rules and stipulations. Once again, we're gonna look at the big picture and try to see how all of it relates to the Sixth Commandment. Now, the narrow meaning of the Sixth Commandment uh, is pretty simple. It's a prohibition of all homicide unauthorized by God. It does not preclude all killing, for it's consistent with justified cases of capital punishment, war, and so on. It does, however, apply to cases such as murder, euthanasia, abortion, and assisted suicide. More broadly, it includes negligent homicide and reckless disregard for human life, for example, as in uh, drunk driving or substance abuse. And furthermore, it penetrates uh, our, our hearts even more. Jesus indicates that to condemn hatred in the heart from which all violence arises. 
He also rebukes the speech that provokes violence. So on the positive side, it implies that there's a mandate to protect and preserve life, and ultimately the demand to love others as ourselves. Our attitude then towards life and death is important. What the Sixth Commandment basically says is that life and death are God's business. He is the Lord of life and death, and we may not take life without his authorization. Rather, we must respect life as part of our reverence for God. We should especially respect human life because people are made, all people everywhere, are made in the image of God. Now, we see this spelled out most clearly in the Westminster Larger Catechism. I rarely uh, read from the Catechism, one, because it tends to be in older English, but I want you to see how expansive this commandment is. Question 135 says, what are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of the life of any by just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, psychic, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient uh, bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. It's a pretty big list. But then we get the next question. What are the duties forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in cases of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. Again, it's a pretty big list. The commandment is small. It's only four words. But the application of the commandment is almost endless. Now, as we approach our passage, we have to ask, what about all the weird laws? Because if you read Deuteronomy, and even more so if you read Leviticus, there's some laws that just don't make much sense to us today. For example, in our text today, Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, reads, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Ancient Israelite houses had flat roofs, and there was an outside staircase that made the roof accessible uh, for people to use as a place for dining or relaxing, or uh, sometimes they would even sleep up there. 
Um, people often use them like we might use a deck or a patio today. And a parapet is a retaining wall used much like we would use a railing today. And so it would protect your family members and friends and guests from falling off the roof, thus preserving human life and upholding the Sixth Commandment. So obeying the commandment then involves more than refraining from homicide. Its moral demand extends even to matters like making one's property safe for others. It's why we shovel our walks and keep smoke alarms in working order, in order to protect our family members and guests. All of this is in keeping with the Sixth Commandment. Furthermore, when we run the Sixth Commandment through the lens of Jesus' teaching, we discover that Jesus links murder with anger. A commandment to not murder also entails the avoidance of inappropriate extensions of anger towards others. Now, when we deal with this varied assortment of case laws that we have in these uh, three and a half chapters, and actually probably the next five chapters after that, we do well to remember Jesus' reference not to neglect the weightier matters of the law, of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We find that in Matthew 23. We must discern the true priorities and the emphasis of the law even as we pay attention to the details. Of course, it's the grace given to us in Christ that enables us to obey the law. So the rules of obedience don't change, the reasons for obedience do. We're not obeying the law to earn God's love, we're obeying the law um, because we've already received God's love in Christ. It's how we demonstrate our love for God and our love for our neighbor. So all of that is a long way around to get to today's text. Now Moses applies this commandment to four groups of people. And uh, we're going to look at them and then we're going to take the most controversial, most difficult one last. So, first we see there's protection for the accused, chapter 19, protection for the accused. Now, we're just going to read four of these verses from Deuteronomy 19, 4, 7, 10, and 21. It says, this is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, verse 7, Therefore I command you, you shall set apart three cities. Verse 10, lest innocent blood be shed in your land, the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, so that the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. And then finally, verse 21, your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So the situation initially here uh, refers to what we would call involuntary manslaughter. That's defined, actually looked up the dictionary definition, the unlawful killing of a human being without express or implied malice through either negligence or an accident. And here the law sets up three cities of refuge to which the accused may flee. While there, this person will be protected until he could be tried under the law. And the reason they did this, this was a provision to protect people who would face uncontrolled rage over unintended hurt. 
the principle of showing sympathy to a person responsible for causing the death of another person accidentally is part of God's law and represents God's way of thinking. And so we could extend what lies behind this law and apply the principle to other situations. It is the teaching of this passage that is behind the principle common today known as asylum. Asylum is a word used for giving refuge and protection to people who feel uh, that they're being unfairly exposed to danger. And Christians are to have God's concern for those who fear that the law won't give them a fair chance. And this principle could be extended to other situations as well. When the Nazis were exterminating Jews, many so-called righteous Gentiles offered them refuge or helped them escape, often at great risk to themselves. And we see this in the news today with Ukrainian and Afghani refugees seeking asylum because it's too dangerous to stay in their own countries. So that's the first principle we see there. Finally, at the end, we see Moses gives us what's known as the law of retaliation, or lex talionis. Verse 21, your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now this statement does two things. On one hand, it leaves no room for overlooking the offense. You can't say it didn't happen. On the other hand, it gives you the maximum sentence. If one tooth is involved, only one tooth is required, not two. It is a law of restraint. You can't take a life for an eye. That's what is preventing. So if somebody hurt someone, they would sort of up the standard and hurt them even more. And they come back and hurt them even more. And it's saying everything has to be the same. It's a law of restraint. Now, we tend to contrast lex talionis with Christ's statement in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And it seems at first glance that Jesus is overturning the lex talionis principle. But we have to remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about personal revenge, not about legal systems. We need to forgive those who hurt us, which helps to provide for our own healing from the hurts they inflict. However, the Apostle Paul has told us that a government authority, Romans 13, 4, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And as we read in our responsive reading this morning, do not avenge yourselves. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. Deuteronomy 19.21 deals with the law of the land, not personal revenge. It's necessary for wrong to be punished in order to maintain stability and have justice in any society. So that's the first. Laws to protect the accused. Second, we see there's rules for soldiers. Rules for soldiers. We still have these today. They're being grossly violated. It's called just war theory. And uh, I've actually given a Sunday school class on that. If you're interested, I can send you uh, that information. Um, but some of that is based on Deuteronomy chapter 20. 
in the beginning of chapter 21. We're going to read verse 1 and then two, three verse, or four verse sections here. So verse 1 says, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then jumping to verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peacefully and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all is spoiled, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. This is the law of combatants and non-combatants there. Verse 16. But in the cities of these peoples, the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save nothing alive that breathes. So we have two different groups of people, two different groups of cities. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, so that you sin against the Lord your God. So the first thing we see with the soldier is what the troops have to do when they reach an enemy city, and that's to make the people an offer of peace. Only if its inhabitants resist such an overture are the Israelites to lay siege to the city. The terms of peace and the sparing of life only applies to these cities that the, the text says are at a distance from Israel. These are cities that are outside of the promised land. And these are cities which are threatening their national security by attacking them. So they're specifically addressing wars of defense. This is not referring to the conquest of Canaan because we're told later that those cities must be completely destroyed because of the danger of religious compromise. Accommodation of morally corrupt and idolatrous Canaanite religion would imperil Israel's status as God's holy people. It would ruin them, exalt idols, and grieve God. And the land was being taken from the Canaanites because, verse 18 says, all of the abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so the theory is, if Israel was taught those things, they'll do them and sin against the Lord. Now this second part brings up the theological problem of the conquest of the Canaanites and why God said they were devoted to complete destruction. And I'm not going to take the time, it's sort of lengthy, to go into that because I preached an entire sermon on it at this time last year. So I encourage you to go to the website, look up the sermon for Joshua 10. And it goes through all of uh, that uh, issue of the conquest of Canaan. I deal with it at length there. So let's just move on. Third, we're going to see there's protection for the family. They start to get a little stickier here, verses, uh, chapter 21, verses 11 through 21. Again, we're going to read two uh, sections here, verses 10 to 14 uh, first. It says, when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house 
She shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. And after that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. You shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. This is what to do with the women who are captured in war, non-combatants. And what he's saying here is this woman is still a human being and must not be exposed to humiliation, as she surely would have been if she had fallen into the hands of pagan conquerors. And if her Hebrew captor wishes to marry her, then the covenant law insists that he should have the proper respect for her as a person, she must be given appropriate shelter taken into your home, decent clothing, put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured, complete security uh, in your house, and an unhurried opportunity to grieve, mourning her father and mother. Now our natural sympathies are with the woman that she should be taken at all. But we have to remember the historical context of the ancient Near East and realize if she was captured by pagan armies, would have been a far different story. Then we have a little thing in verses 15 to 17. I'm not going to read them. It's the situation of a deprived son, the son of an unloved mother. It simply says he can't be deprived of the inheritance that's legally his just because his father no longer loves his mother. One's pretty straightforward and mostly today would apply in cases of divorce. But then we get to one of the most controversial rules. Uh, in the Old Testament, the case of the depraved son, verses 18 to 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. There's people like, we could put this law to good use here. Um, the covenant between God and his people upheld the privilege, the responsibility, the sanctity, and the security of family life. All is good while children respected the standards of their parents, but what happens when a rebellious son refuses to listen to parental advice concerning an increasingly damaging lifestyle? If the young man refuses to obey his parents, however much they plead with him, and if despite their attempts to discipline him, he persists in being a glutton and a drunkard, verse 20, then the matter is referred to the elders. Now, for several reasons, the misconduct can't be overlooked. Although the death penalty is severe, there are four distinct issues we have to keep in mind. First, the procedure emphasizes that the Lord must be obeyed, period. By his persistently sinful behavior, the offender is breaking God's law. And the covenant plainly said, the parents must be honored. Stubborn and persistent disobedience is an act of unloving defiance towards the God who framed that law, the fifth commandment, 
specially for his children's benefit. It, Deuteronomy 10 says it was given for their good. Second, the offender has to be challenged. He has disregarded the earnest appeal of both parents. The normal channels of affectionate pleading have broken down. He continues in, the text says, his stubbornness, rebellion, gluttony, and drunkenness. So the law confronts the young offender with the dire consequences of his rebellion. Life is a responsibility as well as a privilege. And nobody is free to damage himself, grieve his parents, corrupt others, and damage society without being checked. If a drunken, rebellious glutton won't change his destructive life, he'll face the consequences. Third, parents must be supported. The elders of the city have a clear responsibility towards the distressed mother and father. Naturally, parental love would ensure that nobody would dream of bringing such a matter before the elders until they've done everything possible to sort out the trouble within their family. And by laying severe warning, the law sought to protect parents, particularly from the physical and verbal assaults of rebellious children. Finally, the community has to be protected. Such an unworthy member of the family is allowed to continue his corrupt lifestyle unchecked. It would not be long before he'd be joined by others. Sin has a way of reproducing itself, and everything has to be done to halt its influence within the group. So the law is intended to serve as a severe deterrent. Now, all that is said, we have no evidence anywhere in the Old Testament that any Israelite son ever suffered death by stoning for this offense. We have the sort of the law given, but there's no record of that law ever being applied. These verses provide a stark warning about what could happen in such a case, but it's not a description of what did happen. So we have the accused, the soldier, the family, and then finally the neighbor, the neighbor, chapter 22. Here I'm just going to read verse 1 for now. This chapter covers a wide variety of different and on first reading unrelated topics. You have lost property, unacceptable clothing, raiding birds' nests, town planning, agricultural prohibitions, and on and on. And the topics are diverse. But the unifying theme is clear. The covenant community has to consist of good neighbors. God is generous and loving. Nobody who believes in him is allowed to live selfishly and carelessly. Every believer has a responsibility to his neighbor. And the person who lives in the adjoining farm or occupies the house across the street is more than a fellow countryman. The text said he's a brother. Verse 1 says, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. Finders keepers is not part of God's law. To hold on to property which plainly belonged to somebody else is a form of theft and has to be tolerated, uh, must not be tolerated within the community. Now the eighth commandment is just as applicable to things which have been found as to possessions which might be stolen. We're not going to get to those for about three weeks. So all of these laws and how they apply and how they relate to the Sixth Commandment leaves us with a big question at the end, and that is, what difference does Jesus make? 
What difference does Jesus make? I want to do that by focusing in on the end of chapter 21 and where it's quoted in the book of Galatians. So Deuteronomy 21, verses 22, in the first part of 23 says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed. <clears throat> Excuse me, is cursed by God. Now if we jump to Galatians 3, we see this text will be quoted. <clears throat> it says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So what is Jesus or Paul teaching us about the difference that Jesus makes? We're going to have to follow his logic a step at a time here. First, all who rely on the law are under a curse. The reason Paul declares them to be under a curse is because scripture says they are. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26 says, Cursed be anyone who does not conform the words of this law by doing them. Now, reality is no human being has ever done everything the law requires. Such a continuous and comprehensive obedience has only been given by one person, none other than Jesus himself. So clearly it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, because nobody has kept it. The curse or judgment of God, which his law pronounces on lawbreakers, rests on us. Second, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is probably the plainest statement in the New Testament of substitutionary atonement. The curse of the broken law rested on us. Christ redeemed us from it, by becoming a curse in our place. The curse that lay on us was transferred to him. He assumed it that we might escape it. And the evidence that he bore our curse is that he hung on a tree, since Deuteronomy 21:23 declares such a person to be cursed. Third, Christ did this in order that in him the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles by faith. So the apostle moves from the language of cursing to blessing. Christ died for us not only to redeem us from the curse of God, but to secure for us the blessing of God. He promised centuries earlier to bless Abraham and through him the generations to come and to bless the Gentiles. So to sum up this Galatians 3 passage, because of our disobedience, we're under the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from it by bearing it in our place. As a result, by faith, uh, we receive by faith in Christ the promised blessing of salvation. The sequence is uh, irresistible. We're cursed. Christ takes the curse for us and gives us blessings. It should prompt humble worship. 
that God in Christ, out of love for us, is willing to go to such great lengths. And the blessings we enjoy today are due to the curse that Christ bore for us on the cross. As I said at the beginning, it's more of a Good Friday ser sermon. But how does that apply to what's possibly the most difficult verse in all these chapters? And that's Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. It says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. The extremely forceful language regarding inappropriate clothing for men and women sounds a little strange to, uh, to us today. But there are likely reasons for what is essentially an uncompromising prohibition. First, there's a serious moral issue at stake here. Sexual promiscuity is rampant in Canaan, very much part of their culture. Immorality is part of the context of the land that Israel is about to enter. And this prohibition is a warning to the Hebrew people not to identify with the degrading practices of the Canaanites. It has, actually has a lot to do with the pagan religion. And the law doesn't simply relate to clothing but to any typical possessions normally worn or carried by the opposite sex. It emphasizes that gender distinctions are part of the created order and must not be obliterated. Now, transgenderism is a huge issue in our day and age. And I'm gonna post a reading list on the subject soon. I just didn't get it done in time for this morning, but I'll get it done and get it out this week. I have added a footnote uh, in the sermon uh, manuscript and in the outline with a link to a whole sermon on this verse by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, who's a noted Old Testament scholar. And I'm going to quote from it, although I've adapted some parts and added others. So it's not a straight quotation. He says, be mindful of those broken in this transgender identity crisis and care deeply for the violators and the violated. One self-identity will be forever maligned so long as we are looking at a mirror and not into the face of Jesus. We need to help those struggling with transgender identity to find a new identity in Christ. And we need to help those who've been hurt by others who are struggling with gender identity, technically known as gender dysphoria, to find the healing and relief that only Jesus brings. He alone is the savior and he alone is the healer. If any of you today are struggling with transgender identity, first I exhort you to realize that this sin is a direct affront against God and there is a need for repentance. But not only that, know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for your salvation because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, Romans 1, 16 and 17. What I mean is the gospel contains all you need to find your identity realigned with God's definition of right order. In your present state, there is and will be much grief. 
But in the face of Jesus, there is relief. Relief from condemnation. Relief from the fear of man. And relief from the inability to live in accordance with your biological sex. And why am I emphasizing this? I read this uh, quote from uh, Paul David Tripp, who's a noted counselor. And he said this recently as a podcast that I was listening to. And he said this. You will either receive your identity vertically or you will shop for it horizontally. Let me say that again. You will either receive your identity vertically or shop for it horizontally. And if you're going to receive your identity vertically or find it in Christ and in Christ alone, then you need the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for all who believe because through the cross, God becomes 100% for us in Christ, filling our pursuit of rightly ordered living with all his authority in heaven and on earth. He can make you a new creation with a new standing and a new direction in life that displays his greatness to the world. The gospel is power, not only because the cross secures past pardon and transformed desires, but also because it purchases future promises that help to motivate our pursuit of God. The promise that the pure in heart will see God, Matthew 5, 8, can generate new hope, new hunger, and a new identity. And that promise is for each and every one of us. Now, if you find yourself the victim of another's identity crisis, know that Jesus heals and Jesus helps. He can make you feel clean again and set you on a new course that moves through healing to growth. He can give you a sense of purpose. He can restructure your thinking and give you a proper vision of maleness and femaleness. And he can grant you wisdom for moving forward. So the plea here, not just in the law, but in the difference that Jesus makes for us, is to come to Christ and be saved from the torment of your past. Church, I am exhorting you, be mindful of the broken and care. Please, you need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to keep this commandment through our negligence, through our anger, through our hatred, through our disregard of others who don't believe as we do. Please forgive us. Help us to be mindful of the needs of others and bring healing to those who need it. And so by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enable us to obey this commandment by loving one another as ourselves. Grant that we may live like people who love you, so we may receive your promised blessings, and work in each of our hearts this year as we learn to trust you and your word, and through the book of Deuteronomy, draw us ever closer to the one who became a curse for us, that we might be redeemed. Our only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.